Do you know your family tree? Do you have any interest in genealogies? You know, you can learn a lot from looking and studying someone's family tree. For example, if you looked at mine, you would notice several things. You'd learn that I'm Eastern European with names like Yezierski and Gregor Chevitz and my own middle name, Tadeusz. You would know from those names that I'm Polish. You'd observe that my mother grew up in southwest Poland and was raised in an honor and shame household. Honor was upheld as a very important matter, much of which marked my household as well. This also meant, though, that we ate incredible Polish food. My mom and grandmother made the most delicious pierogies, these dumplings filled with potato and cheese. And just a note of of advice, always choose the ones with potato and cheese. They're the best. We always had lots of kielbasa in the house, Polish sausage. And the best was when we were served potato soup. And inside our potato soup, we'd find lots of pieces of kielbasa. And how could I forget kruszczyki? Has anyone had kruszczyki before? Raise your hand. Not a single, maybe, no, not a single one of you has eaten this heavenly delight of a food that will be there at the banqueting table in heaven. It's a powdered sugar flaky pastry that is amazing. It'll take your breath away. Looking at my father's side of the family tree, you'd see that photography was important. One of my dad's uncles was a world-famous photographer, and we even have photos of him in the Oval Office of the White House with President John F. Kennedy. Our home was filled with framed magazine covers that my uncle had taken during his lifetime. Photography was a big thing for my father as well, and unfortunately, when I was around seven, I accidentally dropped and broke one of his cameras. Let's just say there were no pierogies for dinner that night. Now, there are many other things you could see if you looked at my family tree, where people were from, what they did, and the size of my family. A family tree tells us a lot about a person. You can learn a lot from it. Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verses of the New Testament. We looked Last week at the Old Testament, it promises made by God. And we looked at Isaiah's prophecy of the promised servant. That was the part one of our three-week Advent or Christmas series. Advent means waiting. And there was a time of waiting in the Old Testament, a time of anticipation in the Old Testament. And now these next couple weeks, we're going to look at the arrival of the Christ and the Savior who did come. If the Old Testament was a time of waiting and promises made by God, then the New Testament was, in fact, the arrival. And it was the the fact that those promises made were promises kept, promises fulfilled. And after 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, we now at last have the arrival of the Christ. And today, we're going to learn about the promised Christ from his family tree. If you're new to Christianity, our Savior's name is Jesus. Christ isn't his last name, but it's another title for him, meaning the anointed one. 
or the Messiah. He's the one who can rebuke the wind and rebuke the waves with his very word. He's the one who can heal the leper with his touch. He's the one who can literally raise the dead. He's the one who can forgive sins. This is the promised Christ. Now, I thought it was unkind or it would be unkind of me as pastor to ask someone else to read all these difficult names this morning. We normally have someone else read the scripture before the sermon, but alas, today I will have a go at it myself. Matthew chapter 1. I'll read from verse 1 down till verse 17. You can find the words in your Bible and the bulletins are on the screen. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king." And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And this is God's word. This is the first 17 verses of the New Testament. It's a lot of names, isn't it? I wonder if this is a section that we simply skim over when we start our Bible reading plans in a year on January 1st. This gospel doesn't really start with a bang, does it? No superhero lifting tall buildings to save people. 
But instead, the New Testament begins with a long, long list of names. Seems strange. Seems even a boring way to begin a book. You'd think you'd want to hook someone in to reading the rest of it. Make it a little exciting. But friends, but church, to the early Jewish reader, this book's start is anything but boring. It's incredible. Ancient Near Easterners were especially especially interested in records of descent. First Chronicles chapters 1 through 3 and Ruth chapter 4 are an example. There's a saying one of our members from this region often says. He says, to know who I am is to know who we are. Meaning to know about me, you need to know about my tribe. And when you know about my tribe, then you'll know who I am. Now, this introduction isn't meant to be passed over. In fact, this is the good stuff. Genealogies matter because history matters. Genealogies matter because the past matters. Now, Luke also includes a genealogy in his gospel, albeit slightly later in his introductory material. If you put both genealogies side by side, an acute eye would notice a few differences. Matthews goes back to Abraham, while Luke traces all the way back to Adam. We'll see that Luke goes from son to father. Matthew goes from father to son. And then the list from David onwards has some slight differences. Some scholars say that Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy and Luke marries, but we're not sure. Genealogies were not normally recorded through the mother, but there was no plan on what to do if there's no earthly father. This is not your normal genealogy, is it? That could change a few things. Commentator Leon Morris suggests that Matthew's list represents the legal descendants of David, those who would actually have reigned had the kingdom continued while Luke gives the descendants of David in the line to which Joseph belongs. But again, we don't know for certain. Rather than comparing Matthew and Luke's genealogies today or speculating about each and every name, let me offer this morning to us three observations on this text. These three observations will serve as our outline this morning. Three things about this family tree. Number one, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It is stunning in so many ways. Number two, it's ordinary. It is both extraordinary and at the same time, ordinary. And then number three, it's shocking. It is utterly shocking. Extraordinary, Ordinary, shocking, that's our outline. First, let's look at the extraordinary. Look at verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Clearly, this book is about Jesus and his ancestors, Again, remember, while we might be tempted to skim over this 
section, an ancient Near Eastern listener or reader would have been listening intently at these names. Ezra chapter 2 verse 62 speaks of some of the returning exiles coming back home to the promised land. They were searching for their family records, but they could not find them. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as being unclean. No, these records matter. Scholar Michael Green writes, the great rabbi Hillel was gratified that he could trace his genealogy back to King David. And the Jewish historian Josephus, writing towards the end of the first century AD, begins his autobiography by relating his own pedigree. These documents were kept in the public records by the Sanhedrin. As a matter of fact, Herod the Great was so embarrassed that as half Jew, half Edomite, his name was not in the official genealogies, that he ordered their destruction so that nobody could claim a pure pedigree than his own. Far from seeing this as a bit of dull antiquarianism, therefore, the first readers of the gospel would be fascinated that Jesus could trace his genealogy back to Abraham. Now, friends, if we have even just a little bit of interest in our own family trees, imagine theirs. If you had a good lineage, if you came from an honored tribe, you'd always want to keep your honor. You'd want to make sure people knew your family tree. That's why Herod the Great destroyed his. Even today, you want to get into the medullus of a certain tribe here? Where are you from? Who are you? If you want to get citizenship in this country, what tribe are you from? My friend who helped me think about genealogies this past week told me that he has his own genealogy book on his shelf. It serves a bit like a passport, gets you access to certain things. It was actually this genealogy that my same friend read three times before he was a, a believer. As he first started reading the Bible, he read it three times slowly and went from name to name, and he couldn't take his eyes off of it. That this is who Christ is, that he didn't just pop out of nowhere. And while he was taught that the Bible was changed, this was one of the ways, this was one of the passages that convinced him otherwise. You know, Matthew's genealogy, as we see here, is grouped in three groupings of 14. Did you notice that? Right from the start, we know that this list isn't comprehensive, but it's actually carefully selective, more of a highlights of the family of Jesus. There's intentionality with every entry. There are no accidents. Not anyone can write an official genealogy. It had to be accredited by a genealogist back then and today. Even today, you get a certificate that certifies you as having a certain lineage. But we know Matthew would have been credible to do this. He was deliberate. He was a tax collector. He kept good records for his job. He knew he knew the people. He knew where they lived. He'd go to various regions outside of Judea to collect taxes. If there's anyone who could give us a good genealogy, Matthew was that person. There would have been names that he omitted to keep it to 14. It's important to know that the word father, as he uses it, was used both for speaking of your own child in those days along with any of your ancestors. 
So that way, here, Matthew could use that same word, but actually be skipping some generations. So why this breakdown? Well, we don't know. We don't know exactly. D.A. Carson suggests that the symbolic value of 14 is more important than the precise breakdown. So we see Matthew, he breaks down salvation history into three parts. First, the first 14 generations move upward from Abraham to David. And then we have the next 14 generations, and they, they go downward from Solomon on into the exile, where God's people were kicked out of the land. And then the last 14, we see this upward trajectory again, going from the exile to the birth of Jesus Christ. But why the number 14? Some scholars say it's a literary device. In Hebrew, each letter has a numeric value. Aleph, the first one, is worth one. Dalit, the fourth, is worth four. Vav, the sixth, is worth six. And on and on. So the word David in Hebrew is comprised of a Dalit, a Vav, and a Dalit, and that equals 14. So perhaps Matthew here is trying to get us to spotlight, trying to get our eyes on the name David. He's trying to get us to underline it when we see that Jesus is the son of David. That's supposed to stand out to us. The number 14 here also might have caught the eye of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because it corresponds to the number of high priests from Aaron down to the establishment of Solomon's temple. So perhaps Matthew is saying there's a better way. But regardless of the reason, three names clearly stand out. Abraham in verses 1 and 2, David in verses 1 and 6, and Jesus in verses 1 and 16. And this is extraordinary. And even just the first verse, Matthew wanted to show the links that Jesus had with both David and Abraham. Now, Jesus, the son of David, was probably a messianic title. God swore his covenant love to David in Psalm 89. And we have here the Davidic promise or the Davidic kingdom in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of David's descendants would establish the kingdom and his throne would endure forever. Isaiah 9 foresees that he will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, a prince of peace. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom forever. This is incredible. And Matthew shows us that the promises to David would be established forever through Jesus. That Jesus would be the greater David. That Jesus would be the greater king. Now this is mind-blowing because while God's promises seem to be delayed, they wouldn't be dropped. 400 years of prophetic silence. The promise is not yet fulfilled, but they were not forgotten. Most of the people in this genealogy have no description, but in verse 6, we see reference to David, the king. He was the best king. 
The royal theme is clear, but he would lose his authority through his own sin, through the exile, and now he's surpassed by David's greater son, a mighty warrior, one who would come to destroy Israel's enemies and establish God's kingdom. This book is about the one who fulfilled all that it meant to be Israel's greatest king. Well, Jesus is not only the son of David, verse 1, but he's also the son of Abraham, another messianic title. Abraham was given divine promises in Genesis 12, 15, and in chapter 17, a covenant from God. Abraham was given a promise that Israel was set apart as the people of God. In Genesis 22, verse 18, it's promised that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations would be blessed. That every single one would be blessed. Right there, we have an allusion of sorts to Matthew chapter 28, to the Great Commission, our mission of making disciples of all nations. Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, and he's the fulfillment of all of history. It's through Abraham's seed that all the earth would be blessed. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the one who came in fulfillment of the kingdom promises to both David and to Abraham. And therefore, all of the promises of God, all of those promises come together in Christ and are fulfilled in him. Now, this is extraordinary. I mean, this is Matthew's chief aim here in verse 1 and in the entire book. It's as if he's writing this in 100-point, bold-faced font in all capital letters across one page. He's shouting out that Jesus is the one in the, in the line of David, that Jesus is the one who brings the Abrahamic blessings to the world. In short, four words, Jesus is the Christ. There's no doubt what Matthew is claiming in this one verse. We could just stop right here. We could be done for the day. We could just go home. We got the whole picture, not only of Matthew, but of all the New Testament, that Jesus fulfills it all. We could leave right now, but that wouldn't be fun. There's so much more that we see here. So let's go on. This family tree is extraordinary. But it's also quite ordinary. That's the second observation this morning. Number two, it's ordinary. Most of the names, they're quite obscure, aren't they? We won't spend much time on this point, but, but it's worth observing. Look at verse four. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Now, it's highly unlikely that we have named any of our sons after these men. I'm not sure how many Aminadabs and Rams are here today. Raise your hand. If that's one of you, I'd love to meet you. Okay, I see no hands being raised. Salmon, I mean, isn't that a fish? I'm not a pescatarian, but I've never heard anyone named Salmon or Salmon. That's not a typical name we give our boys. We don't really know much about these men. Aminadab, now he was associated with the desert wanderings in the time of Moses in Numbers chapter one, but that's all we know about him. The names in verses seven through 10 were taken from 1 Chronicles chapter three. There, then in verse 11, we meet the brothers of Jeconiah. 
There's not a mention of any brothers of Jeconiah in the Old Testament. One commentator, Hermann Ritterboss, thinks that they were mentioned not because of their importance, but because of their unimportance. They're just ordinary people. It's Jeconiah and his brothers. It's that kind of genealogy, extraordinary, yes, but you can't get past the fact that it's also quite ordinary. Now, the names in the first two-thirds are taken from the Old Testament, but for the last third, Matthew is relying on extra-biblical sources of which we don't know much about, though there is evidence that these records were kept. Josephus, the historian, refers to the public registers as the source of his material and information. But these were not heroes. We don't have their backgrounds. And we can feel some of the sadness or some of the pain in the last third of the names. Israel was suffering the consequences of her sin as they were conquered by Babylon and their leaders deported. They lost their wealth. They lost their land. They lost their very identity. They lost what it meant to be Israel, once obviously royal, now ordinary. Well, Jesus's family tree has ordinary people in it who had ordinary children, who had ordinary children, who had more ordinary children. Now, being in Jesus's family doesn't mean you've done something to earn it. Getting etched into his family tree doesn't mean you were great or that you deserve it more than another. His family tree is simply for those who follow him. His kingdom is for those who've trusted in him for salvation and so friend, even today, you may feel insignificant. You may feel ordinary. You may feel that your faith is weak. But know this, your salvation doesn't depend on the strength of your faith, but on the object of your faith. Your salvation doesn't depend on the strength of your faith, but on the object of our faith, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this Savior was born a baby in an ordinary family in an ordinary town. He lived an ordinary life and he identified with us in every way. And a place on his family tree is available to all. Now, how do we know that? How do we know we can get on his family tree? Well, if you need even more proof, yes, this family tree is extraordinary. Yes, this family tree is ordinary, but it's also shocking. It is stunning, and that's the third point in the final observation this morning. This family tree is shocking. It is stunning. It's breathtaking. It's remarkable. It is phenomenal. It is momentous. And it's something that man would never make up on his own. Three ways it's shocking. We see that there are women, that there are sinners, and that there are Gentiles. We see all three, all three categories overlap with one another. There's a number of women listed here. Now, this doesn't seem strange to most of us. Men and women were created equal by God, made in the image of God, given equal rights by God, complementary in our gifting. But in the ancient Near East, this would have been Shocking. A woman had zero legal rights. She couldn't inherit money from anyone. She couldn't inherit property. Her testimony in court was useless. She had no power. And yet here in this genealogy, we have four women listed. And then we see a fifth in Mary herself. 
In your genealogy, you want to share stories of your greatest ancestors. And this was a hand-picked genealogy of Matthew. He could have picked whoever he wanted to. You'd want to have great stories of the past by looking at your ancestors and by looking at your genealogy. Because if you were the ancestor of a king, then you would have some of those rights of the king. But Jesus' family tree is filled with women, sinners, and Gentiles. And who were these women? Well, is it Sarah? Is it Rebecca? Is it Leah? Is it some of these all-stars of Genesis? Is it those women that Matthew has chosen? Well, no. Instead, who's associated with Christ? We see Tamar. Tamar's children were conceived out of wedlock in an incestuous relationship. That's in Christ's family tree. Rahab was a prostitute from a pagan city called Jericho, Bathsheba. Now, she doesn't even get named. Uriah's wife. She's probably listed this way to point out not only that she was married, but that Uriah was a Hittite. Even though she was probably an Israelite herself, she became a Hittite once she was married. And then you have Ruth. And we know Ruth by her faith. But she wasn't even Jewish. She was a Moabite. Moabites weren't even allowed near the assembly of God. Women, sinners, Gentiles, all wrapped into one. This is shocking. And then we have Christ. We have Christ's miraculous birth from the womb of Mary, a fifth woman. Now, to see these names was as strange as having the first two eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus being women. Four out of the five women aren't even Jewish. It's a family full of Gentile women. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, a race the Israelites were forbidden to marry. And when I said Ruth was a Moabite, that means that her family tree, her lineage traces back to a wicked man named Lot that we see in Genesis. The Moabites were refused assembly with Israel because they refused to give Israel food and drink after they left Egypt. Now, all this to say, King David's great-grandmother was a Moabite, his wife, the mother of a great king, a Hittite. Not a pure bloodline, is it? not a clean family tree. It's a lineage full of shame. This would have been shocking to the listener in those days. They wouldn't have skimmed it over in their annual Bible reading plan. I'll tell you that. And not just the women. The men are even worse. Judah sells his brother. Judah sins with Tamar. There are also wicked kings here. Rehoboam, Abijah, Ahaz. Ahaz was horrible. You could read about him later today in 2 Kings 16 or 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Oh, he was a wicked man. He loved idol worship. He sacrificed his own children, killing his own son. He desecrated the temple. He actually went into the temple, God's house, and he stole silver and gold, and he would give it to other kings. This was a wicked man. If you looked up Ahaz in the thesaurus, the first entry would say evil. Hezekiah did some nice things, but even when good, he was prideful. Solomon was an idolater and he had about a million wives. Maybe he got it at the end of his life when he wrote much of the Proverbs, but he only got it because first his life was 
a horrible mess, an absolute train wreck. Even the heroes, Abraham, well, he lied about his wife a couple times, saying that it was his sister to avoid harm. And what about King David? What about the greatest king? Adultery, abuse, murder. And he was the king after God's own heart. And we thought our family trees were a mess. What about this one? It's as if Matthew puts up a criminal lineup of all these men and women and asks us to choose the guilty one. But the only problem is they're all guilty, all of them sinners, every single one of them. Now, I think one of the reasons this is the worst family tree is so that we could all look at it and see that each of us fits right in. It's the truth of Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female for you. Now listen to this. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So yes, this family tree we're looking at, yes, it is peculiar, but it is not without purpose. It is all by God's divine design. All, all can come to Christ and be part of his family. Doesn't matter what your earthly family tree looks like doesn't matter what tribe you come from. It doesn't matter your heritage. It doesn't matter what you have done. What matters is if you're on his tree, if you're a part of his family, if you're one of his children. This matters because one day this Christ came, the anointed one would become a child himself. One scholar thinks that the shocking immorality of the women in this Passage prepares us for Mary. For Mary, the one who would conceive without any earthly intimacy at all by a providential conception through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, church, you see what this is saying? God uses a young, unmarried woman to bring about the Messiah. We look back at Genesis chapter 3 and we see several curses given, several curses given as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. And we see that the curse to the woman is that her childbirth would be painful. In a sense, through this genealogy here in Matthew, the curse is reversed, culminating with the Savior of the world coming through childbirth. Now, isn't that incredible? And considering this culture, is there anything more shocking than this? I mean, one of the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin is the very way that Christ would come into the world. The King of Kings, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ would be born of a virgin in a little town called Bethlehem. Now, this is incredible. And the good news, friends, the good news is that all of us, every single one of us, is invited to become part of his family. This is what it means to be adopted by God. He becomes our father when we join in with him with our 
fellow brothers and sisters. Well, the apostle Paul understood this. The great apostle who was saved and who spread the gospel message to the nations. Listen to what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, listen to this, this is Paul, the greatest church planter of all time. He says, I am the greatest sinner of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, friends, Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And that's all of us. That's every single one of us. Paul understood this. And remember who wrote this book? The book we're studying today, Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. A tax collector was an Israelite who betrayed his own people by partnering with Rome. He would go around and he would tax God's people and then he would skim some off the top. He would steal from his own people. He was seen as one who betrayed his own people. But he knew something, didn't he? He knew that God could save even him. Why? Because look at this list. Because look at these pages. Look at these verses. These aren't Marvel superheroes. This is not a list man would write on his own. This is not a religion man would, would make up. We would make a list of Avengers and then make a way for us to work our way on that list. But God's way isn't our way. Jesus' family tree is filled with sinners in need of grace, and Jesus opens his arms out to us. Oh, friend, if you're not yet in Christ's family, join us. Join his family. Join him today. Will you repent of your sins? Will you acknowledge that you're just like everyone else, a sinner in need of grace? And will you trust in Jesus to save you? If you do, he will write your name in Jesus' family tree forever. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Oh, fellow Christian, let this truth melt our hearts today. When you repent and believe in Christ, he doesn't write your name in his family tree in pencil. There is no eraser. He writes it in permanent ink. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you sin, there's no way to erase it because it's written in his blood. And that is undoable. It is a gift through the sacrifice on the cross. Because at the end of his life, that's exactly what he did. The promised Christ, he came as a baby born of a woman. And he lived a perfect life. And he didn't go to the cross under compulsion. It wasn't because he couldn't evade those officers. It wasn't because he was tied up and he was too weak. He went to the cross because he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. He didn't go under compulsion, but out of love. Out of love for us and out of love for his glory, he went to the cross and he took upon himself the sins 
of his people. And he faced and took upon the full wrath and the full justice of God. All of that was quenched there on the cross 2,000 years ago. And not only that, but on the third day after they put him in the ground and after they put him in a tomb that was heavily guarded, on that third day after his death on the cross, he rose from the dead, proving that everything that was said about him was true, proving that he was indeed that promised servant, and he was indeed the promised Christ, and he was indeed the promised Savior. Oh, friends, this Christ died for the sins of Rahab and Ruth. He died for the sins of David and Abraham. And he died for the sins of you and me. Now, throughout all the twists and all the turns over the centuries, this genealogy shows us that God was and is always in control. The son of David has come. The son of Abraham has arrived. Church, behold the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promised Christ. We thank you for these beautiful, even unexpected truths. This is no boring list of names, but these verses contain mind-blowing truths. These verses contain truths that melt our hearts. Oh, Father, that you would include any of us sinners in your kingdom is such a question we have. Oh, why? And yet you have poured out your grace and you have poured out your mercy upon us. So, Father, today we rejoice. We rejoice in these truths. We rejoice that the promised Christ has come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.